one with the Buddhas, one with all the Dharmas, one with all the Sanghas. Hi, good to be here with you. Getting into the thick of it. And I have appreciation for all of us engaging this ancient universal practice older than the internet, older than the harnessing of electricity, older than democracy, older than the written word, <clears throat> older than human language, and older than measured time even. I want to share a uh, poem from Michael McClure. Breathe in, breathe out into the nothing. In between is a tissue of worlds with gods and kings and queens and enzymes and angers and laughters and they are swirled into one another, into deepnesses beyond deep, less thick than a white petal, or a color photo of August blackberries by the side of the road, or sunlight on green leaves, semi-darkness, smell of incense. The oval mudra of the hands is my breath, holding a jewel, it is all carved where I sit. Pictures of saints painted on moving air. Bald heads and calmed wild eyes say no to dualism, to me and something else. I was wrong, it's not even one thing. Bow to the night sky. Bow to the night sky inside of everywhere and the morning star that tastes like a fig. Bow to your brown eyes and soft toes. <clears throat> we might die, but we're always being born. See where we truly are. From meditation's point of view, each of us is fully occupying our own moment. Each of us is a shape of time and space that is, is singular. It's our own world in a sense. We can describe it to other people. We can tell them about it, but they can never be fully invited in. We can communicate this world but it's so intimate it actually cannot be shared. Each of us, an unrepeatable, ever-transforming uh, confluence, a meeting of the parts of the moment, the sights and the sounds, the feelings, the weather, the weather inside. Each of us embracing, conscious of, present to the shifting textures and tones of our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and each of us embracing 
and present to the shifting textures and tones of the world. Perhaps you're existing within a cat or within a tree, within a partner, within a fly. You're existing within each member of the Sangha, each of us embracing and being embraced. We're sitting inside each other. Worlds of experience. Dogen Zenji talked about the moonlight reflected in every dewdrop. Each of us a dewdrop reflecting every other dewdrop. And we reflect those reflections, hearing what was heard the way that I heard it, speaking my response heard from the angle of the hearer. It's all mixed up. It's all interpenetrated, as the old teachers like to say. So sometimes we have the question, do I matter? Does my practice matter? And think about the uncountable echoes of yourself. What you said, what you did, what you thought, how you felt, reflected in those that were present to and witnessed to yourself, past, present, and future. Each of us permeating each other while being permeated. And these echoes of myself, of yourself, transparent as ghosts, common as photocopies, and potent as convictions. So each of us, the ordinary miracle and responsibility of this interpenetrating reality, that we are not disconnected. Made of the moment, which is the descendant of all other moments, no more than that and no less. We got the image of making a pyramid of, of twigs or sticks, and that that shape exists only because each twig is leaning on every other twig. And if you remove one, of course, there's no pyramid. So what we're doing, as Kisei was saying, is, is vast. Not in the sense that your mind is this dimension that extends from here to Houston, Texas. It's this voluminous thing. It's vast in that it's touching, touches everywhere. Its extent, its reach, its connection is without, without a gap. And so we are each here enacting this ancient practice of appreciating this fluidity of being and to some degree intuiting or tasting the depth of interconnection, appreciating the unending creativity of life. We don't mean that really good juicy ideas are always coming through, but life is happening always. 
You can't point out any stasis. So here we are enacting this, this ancient practice, appreciating what we call spaciousness. Again, spaciousness doesn't mean this big thing inside you that holds a bunch of things. Spaciousness, the reality, the ability for all of this dance of life to arise in the first place. The ability for all this dance of life to arise in the first place, and it arises right where you sit. So some appreciation of this, this spacious interconnection may be present for us, but looming larger, perhaps, weighing on us uh, intimately are our deep human concerns. Our deep human concerns. On one level, our concern about meaning, and how to make a meaningful life, what it would take to do that. Our concerns about how to have some ease, some pleasure, some sense of all the hardship being worthwhile because our concern to understand ourselves, concerns to know what, what is the operating system from which my thoughts and actions flow, and our concerns for relationship and maintaining those relationships community, partners, families, co-workers. And then there's another level of deep human concern. An abiding fear of loss. An abiding awareness of death. A knowing that transformation is ferocious and not optional as our years go by. So have we, have we touched the anxiety that tends to accompany the ferocious rate of change that marks our lives? Sometimes we really touch that in our sitting some kind of sheen, some kind of screen of ignorance falls away and we really are hit by just how quickly it's all passing by. And how does that show up for you when you're in touch with those, those deeper level concerns Loss, death, transformation. How does it show up? Another question is how do we stop looking? What does it elicit in us when we contact this essential level of concerns? So the Dharma teachings are really about this level 
of the human condition. Dharma teachings point to human anxiety being utterly universal and pervasive and not being resolvable by the mind that's creating it. Deep human anxiety is what marks everybody, according to this proposition, and yet it cannot be fixed by the same mind that is perpetuating it. It can't be resolved by the very orientation to life that's creating it. There isn't a stable place to stand. There are consistency consistencies in our life, consistent presences of all the various kinds, careers and relationship and bodily health. And yet we all know that can just bottom out any moment. All of that can shift just like that. There is no stable place to stand. There are no successful strategies, at least that I've heard of, to arrive at more than relative safety, more than temporary health, more than temporary wealth. At the very least, death will snatch all of that away or transform it in some way we maybe can't know. And so all the efforts to secure various forms of security are both absolutely necessary you could say it's the dictate of love that despite the utter groundlessness of existence, we still have to do our best to create conditions in which beings can thrive temporarily. Despite all the efforts, it's futile. It's futile. Security is not an abiding reality. Just, just think about that. Is, that. is that true? Is that true? Does it depend on your definition of security or safety? Maybe some kinds of security are as flimsy as I'm talking about in other kinds are much more dependable. Is it true that trying to get safe and secure in life is futile? So when we connect with the teachings of the ancestors of our lineage or anybody whose voice is coming forth from the past, 
it's important to understand that they sat in the very same dilemma. In fact, that dilemma might have been more vibrant, might have been more exigent. And democracy is a very recent thing. A view of the equality of human beings is a very recent thing. Electricity, healthcare that actually works, um, stable food sources are a very recent thing. So our forebears who engage these practices, they might have been on mountaintops, but those mountaintops weren't safe. Those mountaintops weren't removed from the exigencies of life. They sat in the fire of reality. And maybe more than I can really know. In this relative temporary safety of the modern world. <clears throat> So I don't know if it was Hongzhi or Hongzhi's assistant who named these teachings or if it was the translator. But this one is called Sit Empty of Worldly Anxiety. Sit Empty of Worldly Anxiety. I'm going to go through it line by line and uh, just share, share what comes out of my engagement with the text. So Hongzhi begins, If you truly appreciate a single thread, your eye can suitably meet the world and its changes. If you truly appreciate a single thread, your eye can suitably meet the world and its changes. So there's the primary concern. The primary concern of groundlessness and how do we respond to that as human beings? If you appreciate a single thread, does he mean there's just this moment? There's just this moment, a single thread, just this moment. Is it trustworthy to live your life just as a, a conversation? in the sense that you navigate through it by response to just the moment after moment presented to you. Actually, some people would say that's the definition of a child, is that they just don't have concern about how things are going to unfold. They're just spontaneously in the present. Is navigating by response to just moment after moment is that impulsive or is that wise? We can verify, and actually sometimes I forget, that the future is truly unknown. We say the future, it doesn't refer to something out there ahead of us. We're, we're pointing to that another moment is going to arise and we don't know what it is. The future is unknown. And we think about the past. The past is informed as a place of responding, but it's an inadequate eye to view freshly what's unfolding now. Because we know in the past, our reference to the past didn't necessarily navigate us in a way that was so skillful.
to respond moment by moment. Is that trustworthy? Does life withhold some data from us with which to make our way? Or is it all right there presented? Can we trust that? If you appreciate a single thread, your eye can suitably meet the world and its changes. Hongzhou continues, Seeing clearly, do not be fooled. Seeing clearly, do not be fooled. And the 10,000 situations cannot shroud you. 10,000 situations cannot shroud you. I love the image of shroud. Talk about visceral. You know, like somebody putting a sack over your head and trying to make your way around a room. Or tossing a, a... a blanket over a lamp and the room going dark. And think about the ways that certain situations trigger me. Based on often past experience, they, they trigger and I'm so confused that I actually don't know top from bottom. I'm really confused about enemy and friend. I react to those who actually might be supporting me and I help those who actually might not be on my side. Seeing clearly, do not be fooled, and the 10,000 situations cannot shroud you. How do you see clearly? How would you know if you were seeing clearly? Would everything unfold the way you wanted it to? Well, that's a fantasy. He continues... Moonlight falls on the water. Wind blows over the pines. Moonlight falls on the water. Wind blows over the pines. So moonlight in Chinese Buddhism is appreciated, Japanese Buddhism, as an image for for wakefulness, for the true nature of our mind. Our minds un, unshrouded. So as we as we sit, I don't take this as a fantasy realm removed from real life. Rather, I see the, the sitting situation as a real confrontation and exposure about the ways we relate to the world about the strategies by which we navigate. And so the shape of our shroud, we can see it. We can see it if we are looking. What does, what does shroud my mind into its various forms of confusion? And interestingly, if you can answer it's this or it's that, which probably you can, having practiced even for a few days, then what does that mean for it to be shrouded? Can it really be shrouded? Seeing clearly, do not be fooled, and the 10,000 situations cannot shroud you. Wind blows over the pines. So in East Asian culture, pines are a symbol of, of eternity. Of, of timelessness, 
ever, ever green, an undying presence through the rains, through the snows, through the heat, the winds blowing over it, firm, rooted. The waters flowing. It's okay to kind of start to unpack the metaphors. I'm afraid for some people with a poetic sensibility, it kind of ruins it when you start to say, well, this means that or that means that. But it's not, it's not cryptic. He's not just, you know, trying to spruce up his language to make it pretty. These, these mean something. The water's flowing. The water's flowing. What is not this water flowing? Water's flowing seen with the light of the moon. Flowing because the steady light of the moon. How do you know it's flowing? By what do you see? 10,000 changes. Hongzhir continues, Light and shadow do not confuse us. Now, he, he's speaking here about when we're in touch, when we're practicing the depth of our nature. From that perspective, light and shadow do not confuse us. Direct experience and concepts, we know the difference. Sounds or voices do not block us. Whistling wind can resonate through the various structures, flowing along with things, harmonizing without deviation, thoroughly abandoning webs of dust, still one does not arrive in the original home. Light and shadow do not confuse us, abandoning webs of dust, yet still one does not arrive in the original home. In our essential wakefulness, in the native wisdom of each of us, the arguments and the Oppositions to the facets of the, the facts of existence are hard to find. The place in us that is wise does not struggle against the way life is. It doesn't struggle against the facts of change. It doesn't struggle trying to hold on to positions and identities. Or does it? sometimes can see myself like a child in the sense of an immature orientation to the nature of the universe. And it's like expecting me to be exempt from the alternation of good and bad times, of gains and losses. But somehow one can cheat or outsmart the very way life is. But in our essential wakefulness, there isn't this argument or this, this dissonance. To paraphrase a, a koan, a koan is uh, a recorded exchange between a student and a teacher or a student or a student that gives us a, a taste of the, the living spirit of Zen, not as a doctrine or a dogma, but 
what is it like from the inside when we practice it? So to paraphrase a well-known koan, a Zen teacher was asked, what's the secret of Zen? In the sense of like, what, what is this all about? What, what's the inside scoop? What's the fruition? And the teacher said, sitting long and getting tired. Sitting long and getting tired. So in one sense, we're in day three of this retreat, and whether you're sitting three hours or 10 hours a day, probably you've got some aches and pains. And that's the shape of the moment. That, that, that is, is reality. That is what is presenting itself. Sitting long and getting tired, that's, that's what's here. But there's, there's another uh, way to look at this, whether over the course of a retreat or many years of practice, sitting meditation exposes, it exposes so much of our habitual orientation. And slowly, perhaps, it exhausts dysfunctional attitudes and approaches to life. There are a lot of things you could do for many, many years that wouldn't bring that about. But there's something about sitting still and paying attention that sort of just cleans things away. One of the things that is designed into the structure of a retreat is that through the fatigue, and I mean the emotional, spiritual, the physical fatigue of really making our best effort to show up and to really be thoroughly present, the hope is that that overwhelms our willpower. The hope is that we don't, we're not able to tough our way through it and maintain our ordinary um, defenses and our ordinary kind of structure of having it together. But the hope is that that fatigue and struggle helps us fall apart. It helps us fall into surrender. Now, surrender, uh, the, the fatigue of the body and the relaxation that comes from that is something I think really familiar to lots of people. That, that juicy pleasure of a really hard day of labor and then when you finally are able to lay down for a nap or for sleep that you just sink right into the bed and it's so delicious. And all of that, all of that work and that deep relaxation really are totally uh, tied up. Something is true similarly with, with the mind. We can get, we can get fatigued or, or the hope is that we get fatigued with how repetitive and suffering-making our own mind tends to be. To really get tired enough that there's a decisive, ah, oh, to let the energy really drain out of the mind, to disinvest in it as a source of reliable happiness.
there's a another old phrase. This one is a little bit intense, and I hope uh, you can appreciate it not just as kind of a warrior statement. It's more than that. There is that that spirit in the Zen tradition of uh, a a vigorous approach to spiritual practice. Maybe maybe more better than warrior is a, a courageous a courageous sitting in the matter of life and death, a courageous facing of what we are. So anyways, this phrase is that you're to grind down your bones in training. Grind down your bones. So in Japan, when you meditate, you're often sitting on, if you're on a cushion, it's often very thin. And you spend a lot of time kneeling on tatami mats. And all of the creature comforts that we have in our modern American zendos are pretty much absent. Pretty much absent. Like intentionally being sit by an open window when it's freezing outside. That kind of thing. Grinding down your bones in training, I hear that as an acknowledgement that there are fixed views and core beliefs that are really rigid. They're like extra bones, actually. They're really rigid. Places in us that are unnaturally hard, that are inflexible. And those bones are supporting a whole body of illusions. For example, the to grind down the bone of, this isn't supposed to happen to me, life. So a softened heart, a flexible mind, a general ease in the system, these are some of the fruits of practice we taste, but often they're, they're hard won. They're, they're, they're born out of coming up against those bones, those hard places. So Hongzhir talks about flowing along with things, harmonizing without deviation, that's a pretty laudable accomplishment to come to that kind of fluidity in one's life where we really can just flow with changes as they come, where we really are flexible. We really are flexible. We have our preferences about how life should unfold. We have our principles, but we're not so rigid that we can't really join in the dance. So he's celebrating that, and yet he says there is more to the path. There is more to the path than that. There is more than going with the flow. There is more to practice than being content with the here and now. There is more than an acceptance of the way things are. It's not just easy come, easy go. I spoke the first day of, of liberation and its celebrated aspects of imperturbability, the undiscriminating respect and tenderness, the confidence and experience in oneself being an expression of source, these as the celebrated end game of what we're doing. 
And what kind of practice will open up our true nature to this degree? What kind of practice will open us up to this degree? What sacrifices are required? Sometimes we, we speak about renunciation. Renunciation and, and a first look at renunciation often is like, oh, I'm supposed to give up the good stuff because it's not holy. Right? <laughs> Some of us catch a, the mere whiff of that and we're done. We're done with Buddhism, moving on. But I think a closer look at renunciation is actually what is getting in the way of me being really free. What is it that I'm holding precious that actually is painful? That's, that's what is invited to be, to be sacrificed. What is it that, that binds us to the closure of the ordinary self? And all of this... And this invitation to work on this level, it is intense and intimate work in the sense that we come face to face with the gnarly fibers in our own heart. And it is no joke. It is no joke. In some ways, it's easier to get three PhDs than it is to really, truly let go to grind down those bones, to truly uh, open the heart beyond its rigidity and its prejudices. But Hongzhir, he can say, from his position, put to rest the remnants of your conditioning. Put to rest the remnants of your conditioning. So we are that, aren't we? Aren't we? Aren't we conditioning? And we're seeing more and more how the shared mind of a society gives rise to people with conditioned views that are just plain ignorant, that are frankly lacking all intelligence. We, we are this conditioned being. We're an interactive assemblage. We're a configuration. In the moment of touch and thought and sight and sounds and impulses and perceptions and sensations. And we're in a configuration of what we've been taught. We are a, a confluence, a meeting of, of conditions. And where is the me apart from this conditioning? Where is the uniqueness that stands apart from the flow and says, I did it. I made it happen. Or I deserve. I'm better. What is that? That which looks at life sometimes with desire and sometimes with fear. Sometimes wishing we could live forever, sometimes wishing it would end. What is that in the midst of these conditions? Is that, 
is that a thought? A thought comes and goes. Angier said, moonlight falls, falls on the water. Moonlight falls on the water. Moonlit water. The thread of change in our lives is continually known. To truly appreciate the single thread of change that's continually known, always experienced. There's never been a non-experience. There are, no, there are no gaps in existence. A thread of change continually known, always experienced. Who is having this experience? Who is having this experience? We say no one. That's not quite right because we love and we lose and we cry and we, we live and we feel and no one is absurd. We say someone, you can't pin it down. Can't pin it down. Ever, ever shifting. One moment I feel like this, the next moment another. Hungzir continues, sit empty of worldly anxiety, serene and bright, clear and illuminating. Blank and accepting, far-reaching and responsive. Sit empty of worldly anxiety, serene and bright, clear and illuminating. Blank, you could think of that as un unmarked, fresh and accepting, far-reaching and responsive. Without encountering external dusts, that is, things that snag your mind, diminish it, capture it, without encountering external dusts, fulfilled in your own spirit, fulfilled in your own spirit, arrive at this field and immediately recognize your ancestors. Immediately recognize your ancestors. As retreat matures, the quality of faith becomes more and more central. In a way, faith becomes the practice itself. Faith in this context is faith with all beliefs and yearning hopefulness and expectations put aside. It's not placing faith in uh, an object that is going to save us. It's not placing faith that someday something will happen to us. How do you define this, this faith of Dharma? We could call it simply the absence of doubt. The absence of doubt. So please take heart from all the thousands of men and women, past and present, who testify to this 
fulfillment of spirit as our birthright. And feel into, call on faith when there's recoiling and stepping back from a further letting be into wakefulness. There are these times we approach in our meditation where we're at a threshold point. Sometimes it feels like we're at a, at a precipice. We're on the edge of something, and so many voices call us back. So many voices are invested in having us turn around. And from the outside, we fear slipping into the unfamiliar. I don't know what it will be like to let go of my mental weaponry. I do not know what it will be like to let go of my mental scaffolding. I'm really unsure about letting down suspicion. I'm really unsure about slipping into that ancient quiet. What will happen to me? Maybe it's not a thought, but uh, a feeling, a, a quiver as we start to approach a deepened immersion. So let's know directly for ourselves what it's like to take the step to be empty of worldly anxiety. Is it really helping us? Is that worldly anxiety an aid? If so, if it really is, keep it, because we all need as much help as we can get. But if it's not, if it's not, let's take this invitation to really release the holds. Really release the hold to give ourselves up to the universe. Maybe this could be a definition of faith if there has to be one. That in some way that our regular mind can't agree with, the universe is utterly trustworthy. Is utterly trustworthy and we are completely and utterly held. So in, in trusting ourselves to the Dharma, and letting the Dharma entrust itself to us. So please continue to put yourself into um, this, this practice. If there's any benefit at all from any of these words, it's just to uh, help us make this this leap, take this this step together. Thank you.